Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and most of the early formative political experiences of my life took place in the great state of Ohio. When I was eight years old, dating myself, I made little signs that said Nixon, and then I taped the signs over the word parking on no parking signs on my street in Cleveland Heights, Ohio, so they read no Nixon. In 1974, my next door neighbor, Art Brooks, ran for the state legislature. And I remember going next door as a kid to that victory party and that the electricity of that event helped give me the bug for politics. And I had a wonderful full circle moment in my own life when 40 years later, when I spoke at the Cleveland City Club, Mr. Brooks came to my speech. As a student at Fairfax Elementary School, I read every biography of Martin Luther King Jr. in the school library. And I spent the summer of 1985 working as an intern on the editorial board of the Cleveland Plain Dealer. I wrote an editorial proposing the then radical step that the United States government should talk to the African National Congress, just talk, who had been uh, branded as a terrorist organization. And so in many ways, what has happened politically in Ohio over the past 20 years, as we think about the country overall, is, as today's guest says in his book, a bellwether, Ohio being a bellwether and a laboratory for what's happening in our country right now. The state that twice voted for Obama and then went decisively for Trump in the past two elections. And now many of the most regressive and reactionary public policies in the country are being hatched in the Ohio State Legislature. So if we want to truly understand what's happening at this moment in history, there are few better case studies than my own Buckeye State. And we are joined today by the perfect guest to look at U.S. politics through the lens of Ohio. And for that conversation, I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Charlene Chang, beaming internationally from our neighboring country to the north. Hi, Charlene. How is Canada? And do you want to introduce our guest? Hey, Steve. Canada's going great. Enjoying the summer so far. Literally, just before I got on, our family saw a black bear in the driveway. So we're in rural parts, oh rural mountainous. You're uh, not in parts. Berkeley anymore. Nope. Living with nature. And um, there's far more parking than Berkeley, but also more wildlife. <laughs> but yes, it's, it's um, nice to be here. And I'm really looking forward to talking to our guest today. Our guest today is David Pepper. David's a lawyer, writer, political activist, former elected official and adjunct professor. He's a fifth generation Cincinnatian. I hope I pronounced that right. You can let me know. And he served as the chairman of the Ohio Democratic Party for six years from 2015 to 2021. I think that's amazing. In that role, he was involved in numerous legal fights against voter suppression. His work was featured in the documentary All In, which highlighted Stacey Abrams' nationwide fight for voting rights. Last October, uh, that's October 2021, David published his book, Laboratories of Autocracy. And that's a book, again, that lays out the dangers that Republican-controlled state houses pose to American democracy and what we can do to fight back. Welcome, David. So great to have you on today. Thank you. It's uh, great to be with you both. And um, you got Cincinnati and you nailed it. That was the Thanks. right pronunciation. <laughs> yeah, funny. It's good to be with you both. I'm a big fan of, of your work. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much for joining. And and on uh, I was looking at your you know book over the weekend and listening to some of the podcasts we were talking about it. And so I spent two years writing my first book, Brown is the New White. Over the past two years, I poured everything into writing my next book, How We Win the Civil War. You've written five books and not that I'm jealous, gotten blurbs from Hillary Clinton, Bill Clinton, and Stacey Abrams. 
So my first question is, how the hell have you written so many books in such a fairly short period of time? Uh, you know, I, I think I, I just somehow, when I get fired up, I get uh, productive and I would squeeze in the book writing. And, you know, my kids are eight and five. So all that writing was while they've gone from zero to eight and five. So I'd kind of squeeze it in at nights or on the road or something. Um, sometimes I would sort of dictate as I drove. But, but the last book, Laboratories of Autocracy, and I, I follow your writing over over Twitter. You you often update us. That was a book that I literally didn't start until about April. And I finished it in September. Oh, wow. And I wrote that one because, as we'll talk about, I was so, you know, the, the, the subtitle of the book is A Wake-Up Call from Behind the Lines. That's why I wrote it, mm. because I'm so concerned that people don't see, and they're seeing it more now with the last couple of months. They don't see the big picture where it is. And I wrote the book almost, you know, if, if you can picture just typing frantically, like, my God, people don't see it. It's happening all over this country. Ohio tells the story well. So I wrote that book faster than any other out of literally this sense of urgency of getting it out so people can start seeing what's really happening in, in a way that hopefully leads to some changed behaviors from those who support democracy. So, uh, David, let's start with uh, Ohio. Um, as I mentioned, you know, Ohio has historically, you know, elected uh, Democrats and has taken much more of a turn to the right in the recent elections, right? Elected, you know, back to Obama in 2008 and 2012, elected Ted Strickland, a governor in 20, 2006, along with Sherrod Brown. And yet the past really decade um, has been, you know, much more challenging and problematic. So fundamentally, what is your assessment of what's transpired in Ohio and what's going on with uh, Ohio voters? So, I mean, my broader assessment is Ohio, despite, you know, Obama, obviously his historic win there, uh, Strickland's big win in 06, Sherrod's wins. But but I think it's safe to say that Ohio over decades is probably a slight is a toss up, slightly lean red state mm -hmm. uh, and, and a really good Democratic candidate can win it if if it's also a good, uh, the right moment. And that's what I think has happened that gives it some blue. And by the way, that could happen this year too. I think the Tim Ryan, JD Vance matchup might actually lead to that because Tim's working hard and JD Vance may be a very flawed candidate, but overall, I think Ohio is a slightly red state. The point in my book is to say the hidden driver where this slightly red state toss up state that elected Obama twice, but now feels like it's legislating to the right of Alabama. Is the fact that th that the the hidden source of power, the hidden front line of the attack on democracy, are all these state houses all around the country that are gerrymandered to a hilt? In Ohio's, you know, the part of the point is if this can happen in a state that's voted for Obama twice, that they are legislating. You know, this this ten year old rape victim that we've all been reading about from Ohio, a bill that required uh, that that was passed from the House, not in the Senate yet, that that required general inspections of girl athletes to, to make sure they're not transgender, for example. I mean, insane stuff. Mm -hmm. And so part of the point of the book is to say, in this moderate state that voted for Obama twice, still has a Democratic senator, we are seeing the most extreme legislation you can imagine. And all that gets back to a state house that is so rigged and so gerrymandered that it's basically no longer moored back to the people of Ohio. I mean, even now, as conservative as Ohio has looked when it voted for Trump, if you did a poll in Ohio, most Ohioans do not support the banning of books. Most Ohioans support Roe v. Wade. 
Most Ohioans support common sense gun reform, yet the state house is doing the exact opposite. So it really is a case study of how these very rigged state houses are being used to attack democracy. And the, the wake up call part of my book is to say until national Democrats, beginning with Biden on down, start to understand that that's where the other side's on offense. And until you go on offense where they are on offense, and if all you do is focus on a few federal swing states and that's it, you are going to lose. And, and Ohio is sort of a, a sort of a sad, bright example of, of how that's happening. But it's happening all over the country. I mean, after I wrote my book and you'll get this when you're when your next book is out, I'm sure you've seen it in prior books. I get emails from all over the country. I do Zoom calls all the time from all these places that say, my God, what you described happening in Ohio feels like my state. It feels like right. Missouri. It feels like mm-hmm. Tennessee. It feels like Florida. So many people now feel like their state houses are no longer connected to them at all and are passing things just way out of touch with how these states actually feel on issues. And, and the sad truth is they're all right. I mean, these state houses have become cesspools attacking democracy, of extremism, of corruption, of racism. And uh, until we grapple with that, I'm afraid that just electing more federal officials isn't going to cut it. I'm just listening with interest, David, and I wonder if a little bit of the elephant in the room, you know, you're talking about voters are, you know, voting in this direction and this this impact. But I want to get a little specific and talk about white voters. Yeah, because I think, you know, one of Steve and I are pet peeves in reading political media coverage is they talk about voters, voters. But, you know, a lot of times really what they're not saying is is the race part. Right. right. About attitudes of white voters. So yeah. I just wanted to get your insight. Like we just touched upon the fact that Ohio is a state where a larger percentage of white voters did back Obama, who was right. black, is black, <laughs> has been black. And at the time, you know, that was a 46 percent of whites in 2008 had voted for Obama. And then this again, this is Ohio. Then 33 percent of whites voted for Clinton. So le- like significantly less and then even with Biden, a white man, they voted uh, in Ohio, 39 percent of white voters voted for him. So that number it just continues to trend downward from the Obama figure. Right. I'm just wondering what your analysis and take is on why fewer whites are backing Democrats in Ohio post Obama. Yeah. You know, it's a great question. I'd love to see the carry the carry number on that, too, because I mean, Obama really you look at his win, it's it's incredible win in Ohio. The numbers yeah. he put up in some of the red counties, you know, he was in the 40s or, or f- at 40. And, you know, Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden were in the low 30s or lower. So it wasn't, you know, he, he had enormous numbers in our big urban areas, but he cut the margins very effectively in, in more rural areas. And that combined to a win there. Let me just say more big picture. And this this has been driving so much just to be very explicit about it. Obviously, and, and you know, we've had uh, people much more grounded in this than I am, but, but all of her observed the same thing. So much of what's driven everything since 2009 has been white backlash. Uh, yeah. not, not just that Obama was this historic, you know, first African-American president, but that the diverse Obama coalition rose to exert its mm. role in this country, displaced a lot of people from power in states like Ohio. They lost the state house in 08. We had the congressional majority go through this in the book. And so, yes, yeah, so much of what's happened in Ohio since is clearly part of this, you know, our entire nation's history 
of white backlash whenever a diverse majority comes together, fueled by black voters to to actually say, hey, we're the democracy now. And I think that's not just driven voter behavior, but it's driven, you know, it's driven almost every issue around, you know, voter suppression and gerrymandering in Ohio since 2010, since Republicans came to control Kasich in the state house. It's been one, you know, long exercise of basically destroying the Obama coalition that they think booted them from power in 2008 in particular. And so mm-hmm. I think they've been able to appeal to voters on that basis. But I also think the attacks on early vote, the attacks on drop boxes, the gerrymandering has all been driven by, you know, the threat of a diverse coalition of voters, the kind of coalition I know, you know, the new majority that Steve talks about so often, they have basically seen that that's the threat to them. And, and one of the most important insights is, it's not just a threat to them when it comes to the White House. The State House politicians, their first concern is themselves. And that diverse coalition, incredibly, in 2008, even though Ohio was gerrymandered by Republicans in 01, the diverse coalition that came out to vote for Obama in 08 also gave Democrats the Ohio State House. Mm. It elected Governor Strickland. So their first concern was we have to destroy that coalition, that Obama coalition, that new majority in 11 through voter suppression and through gerrymandering so that we can stay in power in Ohio. And if that wins us the White House, great. But their first concern was never to lose a state house again. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I think clearly race is a massive driver in this, just like and I go through this in the book. The most parallel moment to right now in our history, I believe, is the late 1800s after blacks were registering and voting in big numbers in the South. Mm -hmm. And that new that new majority was electing blacks to state houses and statewide offices and Congress. And that's when the white Democrats back in the day in the South came up with the myth of voter fraud. The KKK emerged by by 1900. Almost all the registered voters in those states were gone. And all of a sudden, for the next 65 years, there almost wasn't a single elected black official in the South. This to me is the parallel moment. So, yeah, a whole lot of a whole lot driving the behaviors of the officials. And I think the some of the voting that follows it is is white backlash to seeing a diverse majority arise. And that obviously is, you know, and, and Trump is part of that. He's not the driver of it. it be, one of my key points in my book is this began before Trump ever ran for office. The, the backlash, the attacks on democracy, the statehouse level began before Trump was ever elected. It would have continued if Trump had admitted he lost and if Trump's locked up tomorrow for January 6th, it will continue. Yeah. And that's something that we all should be very uh, you know, awoken to and not simply dismiss this as this Trump phenomenon. This goes back to our founding, this white backlash, and it will continue. Uh, and we have to you know, be very in one of those most scary parts of the of the censorship of our history that they're trying in the banning of books is they want to blind Americans to that that sad history yeah. that yeah. we're living through again right now. All right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to take you on the road with me, Dave. You're, just, you're stealing the thunder from my, from my book. Oh, <laughs> How we win the Seriously, Civil I'm War. like, hey, these all yes, sound familiar. This goes back no, to no, the post-Civil War period. So, yeah. you're right. Your book will probably be a more thoughtful version of what I whipped out in a few months. No, no, no. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the Senate race, actually, in this context, right? Good. And so in a lot of ways, it is going to be a bit of a case study around, frankly, in terms of of engaging white voters. And so yeah. you have on the Democratic side, Tim Ryan, who, you know, we and I have been somewhat critical of because he has been more leaning and emphasizing this piece around 
how he can um, win over white voters. And I feel that that sometimes underestimates the important, well, for one, the, the power of the white backlash, but also deprioritizes engaging voters of color. But he's the Democratic nominee. And so, you know, as, as you know, progressive people, we're, we hope he does well. But what's so significant about this race, right, is that he's running against J.D. Vance, who in, is the like poster child for white, you know, aggrieved politics, right? He wrote this book, Hillbilly Elegy, which which many people in mainstream media embraced as, you know, this celebration of how the, you know, white, white poor people have been, you know, abandoned. And that's why they're turning to the to the right. And then Trump and then Peter Thiel dumped millions of dollars into Vance getting him to run. And he won the Republican nomination, despite his like, you know, hedge fund current you know identity and whatnot. But you have these competing, you know, I don't know if icons or whatnot in terms of what has to happen in terms of engaging white voters. So, A, just kind of what's going on with that race. And then B, what's your analysis of how it's going to play itself out? You know, I... I think that Vance may, you know, we're seeing this with um, a lot of these Trump endorsed candidates like Mehmet Oz and the guy out in, um, I guess, Arizona. Vance may just turn out to be a really weak candidate. I mean, you you would never, I tell people, and you would know this too, you know, John Glenn lost his first try to win Ohio, the Senate in Ohio. It's hard to just show up with no footprint and no political infrastructure and win. Now, Maybe that got Vance through the primary because mm-hmm. it was basically it was it was a really bad primary. These were mm-hmm. this was the JV of the Republican Party, deeply flawed candidates, mostly self-funding. So Trump's endorsement bumped Vance from like 13 points to 28 points in a very weak field, in a very bizarre field. But the hope would be because we want to win the Senate seat that J- J.D. Vance may through the book and others sort of appeal to that interest. But if he's a deeply flawed candidate, who looks inauthentic, then maybe Tim Ryan can sort of make a break for some of those voters. And most Democrats, I think, as you would say, you're not going to win over because you just can't. Well, Vance, you know, spent he, he's hanging out with billionaires in California, you know, offense to California that. But that's the ad that Tim will. That's the narrative that Tim will push. He literally said at one point he's not comfortable being back in Ohio. Mm-hmm. And so it, he he'll, he's going to try and, and do what you're saying, Vance is. But he may end up being with his very you know, fancy pedigree, unable to do that. Mm-hmm. While Tim from Youngstown basically never really left Youngstown mm-hmm. and has a story that in, in other ways is more authentically tied to struggling middle class workers in Ohio than Vance is. And so it may be that, that he just may not be a good, despite the book, which, as you said, was more of a coastal phenomenon than anything as people try to understand Ohio from thousands of miles away, Vance may just be a really weak candidate to push that, even though on the surface, you know, based on a book, you might not, you might think otherwise. And, 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 J- and Tim Ryan may be a very good candidate because he never left Ohio and he did vote against trade deals. He was against, he was against the trade deals before Trump was against them. And so it may be, and again, I, but I agree with you. I, I think that it's a case study and Lately, I mean, my number one message would be if you don't do something to to prioritize and inspire and persuade the voters of Cleveland and Cincinnati and Columbus are, you know, the base of the Democratic Party to show up, you don't have a chance here. My hope is Tim does still do that, because I think if all you're trying to do is win over those voters, you're just not going to win. You need to you need to do what Obama did. You need to narrow your losses in those parts of the state 
but then you need big numbers in your cities or you just don't have a chance. And, and if you try and do one without the other, you're probably not going to succeed. But but J.D. Vance may be a, a, a candidate that can be exposed as being totally inauthentic. I mean, mm-hmm. it's astounding the way the guy flipped. I mean, he was clearly saying what he believed about Trump a few years ago. He flipped to win the primary. It's looked pretty bad. He has no footprint in Ohio. He hasn't been here at all. He lives in a very you know, multi-million dollar home in, in a nice neighborhood in Cincinnati. So it just, the whole thing's inauthentic. Can Peter Thiel save him with millions? Maybe. But you saw the fundraising the other day. He has no support. No one, no one really knows this guy. And so it, it really will be a, a, an interesting case study if, if this sort of last dash attempt to look like an Ohioan works, but we'll see. Yeah, yeah. I mean, eventually you mentioned the word authentic, and I think that's something that gets left out of political yeah. analysis a lot in that people turn to trying to understand Sherrod Brown's continued success in a state that often goes Republican is that you can't get much more Ohio than than Sherrod, I feel. And yeah. he really resonates with a lot of the voters at that fundamental level. So. Yeah, I mean, he leaves he leaves the impression more than just from a 30 second ad, but just his whole being is he's fighting for you. Right. And that's something that, again, he doesn't win those red counties either, but he'll get to 38 or 40, which is close to what Obama did. Obama did even better versus, you know, Clinton or Biden, who got to um, low 30s at best. But let me be clear on one thing that I in you'll in this is the part of the book that I think that that hope, you know, it's painful, but it probably was especially relevant to you. The the red flag crisis of Ohio is the purging of our big cities. Mm -hmm. I go through this in the book, the number of registered voters in Cuyahoga County and you see it especially now in local races. The turnout and the number of registered voters, particularly black voters in our larger counties, has just fallen through the basement. Mm-hmm. And the specific mode of purging that the, 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 the two set last sectors of state, you know, Houston and then LaRose, it's targeting directly the, the again, the Obama coalition. Mm-hmm. So I, I go through this and look, you, you would never know it. But Hillary Clinton and when I was on our podcast, I told her this. She got a higher percentage of the vote of the registered voter of Cuyahoga County than Obama did. And Biden got an even higher percentage of the vote than Clinton. But their raw vote number was tens of thousands of votes lower than Obama Mm -hmm. because there's so many fewer voters registered in Cuyahoga County. Mm -hmm. Because beginning in 10, they just went after these voters. You know, if you didn't vote in a couple years and you didn't respond to a postcard, you were knocked off the rolls. And that took poor mobile, you know, move, the, the voters who move every year or two or those who simply are infrequent voters and every once in a while get excited, those people are off the rolls. And that has devastated, I think, long term, the Obama coalition here that has made it a lot harder to win than it was 10 years ago. Can you imagine Hillary Clinton spent most of her campaign trying to re-register purge voters? Wow. That meant she wasn't communicating with registered voters mm-hmm. as much as she would have been. And even even she did all that. She didn't get nearly the number of people registered prior to the purges. And she outperforms Obama by the percentage of vote. But there's so few voters that her margin in Cuyahoga County is like 50,000 votes less than Obama's. I mean, they've basically taken a, a, a you know, a, a baseball bat to the Obama coalition and made it so much harder to win Ohio than it than it was in the prior year. So one of the most important points is that when you see states like Georgia Texas, when and, and you know, drop boxes is the new early vote. I, I go through this in the book and I do these whiteboards. 
they never cared about drop boxes when it was in Anchorage and Salt Lake City. Right. People voted with drop boxes for years. But the minute black voters used drop boxes in in Detroit and Philly and Atlanta in 2020 because of the the pandemic. And we know that those were predominantly used by black voters in big cities. Now they're going for drop boxes. That's the same thing that they did in, in 2011 on early vote. They figure out how are black voters voting? How is the coalition that threatens us voting? And how do we make that mode of voting harder? That's their that's their game. And right. the story of Ohio is it's actually been really, really effective. Yeah. For our non-Ohio listeners, Cuyahoga County is the county where Cleveland is. And that's the one of the largest populations of black people within the within the state. Yeah. And if you don't run up big numbers, I mean, Cuyahoga County, after Obama's votes were in, I think, in 12, which was closer than 08, Obama was behind after the other 87 counties came in. Mm -hmm. And then he won Ohio by, I think, like, you know, I think it was I can't remember now around 100,000 votes Mm -hmm. because his numbers in Cuyahoga were so through the roof. So in some ways, you know, that was so close. You remember Carl Rove freaked out on 2012 election night. Cuyahoga County was arguably, along with a few others in other big states, the county that won Obama the reelection. Yeah, it's that big. So when you take it, when you take a battle axe to the voting registered voters of Cuyahoga County, you are impacting the entire state and in in a close race, the entire nation. And they've done it incredibly effectively. And uh, as I say in the book, these are laboratories we're talking about. So every other state house, once the process in Ohio showed to be effective, other states start doing the same thing. It is just now you got me all riled up. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> it is so maddening, but it is so um, clear. You really made a really gave me some greater clarity into remembering um, what's what's at play, right? And I do want to talk more about your book. Uh, I wanted to give the listeners a little bit of insight into the title of your book and and what it's you know referring to. And your title of the book is Laboratories of Autocracy, which is a play on the phrase Laboratories of Democracy, which was popularized by Justice Louis Brandeis. He was an associate justice on the U.S. Supreme Court from 1916 to 1939. So I thought that was just a really neat factoid that not everybody necessarily would know that that's what you're playing on that phrase, Mm -hmm. Laboratories of Democracy. And what Brandeis was talking about back then was that state houses could be in their most idealized form. But that's not what we've been witnessing in terms of what's happening um, in the state houses. I know you touched upon this earlier in terms of what spurred you to write this particular book. But can you help situate us even deeper and further? Do you remember like where you were and what was happening when you said, I got to write another book? Yeah, this is it. I was literally, you know, I'm very active on Twitter and I almost tweeted at an author friend of mine who has written books in Ohio, his name is Brian Alexander. I literally had written a tweet saying, you, because he had su- he had done something about the state house. And this, this was, by the way, when all the state houses last February, March had begun to do the, the horrible round of voter suppression that we all saw them do. Georgia, Texas, you know, when the Texas legislators walked out, it was all happening at once. Yeah. And it happens in Ohio all the time. And I almost tweeted at somebody, um, they're no longer laboratories of democracy. They're laboratories of autocracy. And mm-hmm. all of a sudden, I'm sure this happened to Steve when you've written your books. I thought, wait, that's not a tweet. That, that's bigger. <laughs> right, so I thought right. maybe it's an op-ed. And I started writing this op-ed. I thought, mm-hmm. no, no, this is bigger than that. Uh, because to go back to Brandeis's, Brandeis's quote, all the reasons that Brandeis said that state houses could be laboratories of democracy, 
And the reason state houses can be that is one, they control almost every substantive issue we care about, from mm-hmm. what we teach in schools to Roe v. Wade to equality in all sorts of different ways to gun issues to climate change. State houses control every issue we care about, but state houses also write the rules of our elections and they draw the districts. So they have enormous power over the substance that we all fight about in politics and the shaping of democracy itself. So just like in the right hands, they are a great place to push for reforms, which was a Brandeis talked about. In the wrong hands, they can be the front lines in the attack on democracy and fundamental rights. And that's what they've become. And this is the point that I that I focus in the book and all the time now. One side, the right in the Koch brothers and all the very extreme gun groups and the anti-Roe groups, the, that side has figured out that going through state houses is a far better strategy than going through Washington, where there's so much attention, it's hard to get anything done. The, if they want to control democracy, and they, here's the problem, the, the far right knows they represent a minority. You know, white supremacy does not do well in the polls in a majority, in a diverse majority, nor does getting rid of abortion when it's actually popular, nor do crazy gun laws. They know they're a minority party. Mm-hmm. So they don't they don't, you know, think to themselves, how do we win a series of elections on a fair playing field? They know they would lose. Their goal is how do we subvert democracy enough to keep our views in place? And they have figured out the single best way to do that is through state houses, because the state houses control every issue they care about. But state houses can be rigged through gerrymandering and can suppress coalitions that oppose you through voting laws. And guess what they've done for 10 years? Exactly that. And that's how they have created. It's not an exaggeration term, although it's it picks up on Brandeis. They literally have created these laboratories of autocracy all over the country where they can push a minority worldview, even in those states, because they've gerrymandered those states. So there's no accountability. And the reason the laboratory part is important is they're always learning from one another. Every if something works in Florida, well, we see it in Ohio. If it works in Ohio, it goes somewhere else. If something fails in a state, they learn from it and correct for it, like early vote or like drop boxes. So they really have made a, you know, this very aggressive move to control state houses. And what's the Democratic side done? Basically stayed focused on a few federal swing states and let them have the run of these state houses to a point where it's now destroying us. Mm-hmm. And so the book is saying, pay attention to where their fight is. And until you go to where their fight is, you're going to keep losing. You know, it's like a soccer game. We both have kids. We just talked about that. My son plays soccer. If one side is always on offense shooting at one goal and the other side is only in that goal, they're going to lose. Right. That's what we're doing right now. Yeah. And until we start to say, no, you know what? We're going to start holding people accountable in the Ohio State House for passing toxic bills or in other states. Until we start going on offense in these states, they're going to keep attacking the fundamental rights that a few weeks ago was abortion, but they're going to move into all the others. It's not just the Supreme Court. The Supreme, the Supreme Court of this country is their shield. Their sword are state houses. That's where their laws are passed. And until we go there, they're going to keep winning. And it's very frustrating once you see this to see that we just never go there. We just keep fighting the federal swing state battle and we leave dozens and dozens of states to foment into these bastions of extremism because we're not even in the game in those places. I I think you touched on this, but just uh, on this point in terms of, did you, have you seen like, where was the pivot 
point and like in looking at the Ohio State legislature was it it wasn't always was it always like this and when did it change and what's your understanding of how and why it changed so the big so let's just be so going back of course the battle for democracy the battle against a diverse democracy has been our history but the most recent explosion of it came with Obama winning mm-hmm. and then Karl Rove successfully winning a bunch of state houses in 10 and gerrymandering in 11. Mm-hmm. And the gerrymandering of 11, I mentioned, they gerrymandered 01 Ohio, but we won in 08 with the Obama coalition. The 2011 gerrymander in states like Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, many others, Ohio, North Carolina, far more extreme. Mm-hmm. In a way that I, I go through the book, not only did, did they maintain control of Wisconsin. So just here's a number that's really stunning. So, well, two, Obama won Ohio, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan by almost the same margin in 12 as he did in 08. These were blue states mm-hmm. in 12 and 08. And in, in 08, when Obama won, well, we won the state house and we won the congressional delegations too. In 12, the same blue states were all of a sudden deeply red in their state house in congressional caucuses. And it got so, their gerrymandering is so bad that even in 18, which in hindsight was a wave, Wisconsin had a nine point margin for Democratic state house members if you add up all the votes. But their gerrymandering was so effective that Wisconsin Republicans still had a supermajority of the Wisconsin state house, even when the voters of Wisconsin preferred a Democratic legislature by nine points. So the 11 gerrymandering was so intense that almost to a person in Ohio, and this is another point I go through in the book, it's not just about a major, them maintaining majority control, even when they only represent a minority of the voters. In Ohio and other states, almost not a single member of these state houses to a person ever worries about an election. Mm-hmm. We, have a, we have eight-year term limits in Ohio. So we have an entire generation of politicians right now in Ohio, in the state house, who've never worried about an election. They're, they're basically living separate from democracy as we think about it. And the reason why the extremism is exploding is because we're literally talking about people who don't have any sense of actually being accountable back to the people. And once you have that, they are more extreme than ever because they worry only about a primary from the right. They're corrupt as they can be because they never worry about you know, the public. They worry about the private interests that are in the statehouse. And here's the worst part if you care about you know, Ohio. The public outcomes in many of these states are a disaster. Mm-hmm. You know, our schools, Steve, this will depress you. Our schools were ranked sixth in the country in 2010 when Strickland was governor. They're now in the mid-20s. Wow. Our health outcomes, particularly for black Ohioans, are in the low 40s or 50. Our, our, we have the highest level of student debt in the country, but the same state house people get, 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 keep getting reelected. So basically what happens in these gerrymandered state houses, a, a complete decoupling from public outcomes and their reelection. They don't care about public outcomes. So you see these downward spirals of extremism and tax uh, public outcomes, but the key for them is to keep these places from ever being really democracies again. That's how they stay in power. So you see with it all a never ending attack on democracy itself. That's basically the phenomenon I describe in the book. And what's happened is the right wing through Alec, through the Koch brothers, through the Heritage Foundation, They've all figured out this is where they can win more so than in D.C. Basically, hot wiring all these state houses is the easiest way to get their right wing agenda done as long as they have a Supreme Court that will hold all that stuff. And that's what they have going right now. And again, until the left figures it out, 
it's going to keep going the, in the wrong way. I am, uh, I'm, I'm gripped by the edge of my seat. I like, I can't, I'm, I'm so grateful for the insight, but my head is literally like exploding with all the understanding, getting just a reminder of all the forces at play yeah. and trying not to go there. Like, and then what, what, what do we even, you yeah. know, have a chance on our side if they're being so effective and so insidious and also just, you know, on all fronts coming out all, all sides, right. Of the, well, here's what I do. Here. So you'll be glad to know. And I know Steve's book that I can tell from the title does the same thing. The last third of my book is about what we do about it mm-hmm. because I don't want to just depress everyone sure. and have people give up. I mean, Yay. <laughs> and, but we have, but the first step we have to all figure out, and I, I'm sure Steve's book does the same thing. We are in a battle for democracy itself. Yep. That's the battle. Mm-hmm. And we have been fighting on, on our side. We have been fighting a battle assuming democracy is intact. And we're just fighting up to win elections. Right. But once you realize, no, 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 that's not the battle. This is the same battle the suffragists fought, that John Lewis fought, that Stacey Abrams, frankly, had, she saw it that way in Georgia. She knew it was a long battle for democracy itself. Once you have that shift in your mind that that's the battle, everything changes when it comes to strategy, how you win how you get going, how it's a never ending and long battle, not just a short cycle for federal swing states battle. And I go through that in the book, how how all these things look different. But the first thing is to get a lot more real and serious about what we're facing. And although I think Democrats are waking up to that, Mm. I still don't think they're acting that way in too many, too many ways. And until we go all in and say, no, no, this is much bigger the stakes are much bigger. The stakes are like they were in the late 1800s. When everyone saw what the KKK was doing, they saw what they were doing, but they never stepped up to battle it. Ulysses Grant, a proud Ohioan did. But later on, they cut too many deals. They didn't really take it on. And what did we get? You know, almost a century of Jim Crow. This is one of those moments. And I, and I go through in the book, how do we go deeper? How do we see it differently? How do we fight harder? And, you know, Stacy is one of my, um, I happened to go to law school with her. So I've been watching her was that for right? years. Oh, yeah, I, I was, I, I was, I clearly didn't take the classes she, she did. <laughs> but, but we all knew her and, you know, we knew her in many ways. She was also a romance novelist. So she's so talented, but we've all watched her. Steve, I'm sure you have too. And Charlene, her battle in Georgia was not the typical, let's go only fight over the next federal cycle battle. She understood she was in a long battle for democracy in Georgia, and she fought it in many ways through tough years and good years. Sometimes it evolved her as a candidate. Sometimes it didn't. She understood the long game. And we often, because we don't think of it's a battle for democracy, we too many parts of the Democratic side, we're fighting short game after short game to short game. We give up everything. We don't do everything we should be doing. We make some terrible decisions because we only are thinking about certain seats in certain years, while the other side is in deep every single year at the state level, Mm -hmm. always winning. And once they win, they lock in a state like Ohio and they don't give it up. And the point is, if the two sides are battling their battles in these ways, the one side's always going to win. We need everyone thinking through long game, long battle and adjusting every strategy accordingly. And and so I just want to say this, Charlie, because I'm not just preaching a doom and gloom. I, I think that those of us who point this out need to also say, well, here's how we do better. Here's what we do differently. And, and I know Steve and I are on the same page on many of the things that we have to do. One of the things I put in very clearly is 
we should be proud that we that we actually represent the majority, the new majority on most issues, yeah. uh, on almost yeah. all issues. And too often we sort of hide from that as if we let the other side convince us that we're somehow in the minority. No, we're in the majority. They're That's not. Right. That's why they exactly. gerrymandered. And so I go through in the book all the ways that through a diverse set of candidates in messaging and nonstop organizing that we have to embrace the fact that we are in the majority. The reason they cheat is because they know it. The reason they attack democracy is they know it. So, yeah, there are a lot of solutions. And I also don't we, we can't give up. You know, people want as well. Is it too? It's never we're in a battle for democracy. It's yeah. been a battle for our whole history. So if it may be late to start, but it's not too late. You just got to start. And if you haven't started by now, get going right now. It's not too late. It's it's a centuries long struggle that we are now in the middle of a very sort of heightened moment of. That's right. The long game. And it's just good to keep that in mind. I know we're getting to the close, but I did want to get you to talk real quickly about your latest project. And it is summer. And so we do often recommend, try to recommend books for summer reading. Talk about, you were talking about Stacey being so talented because she does what she does and she writes novels and fiction as well. Learned that you have a fiction book, a novel coming out in August, August 2nd, I believe, called A Simple Simple Choice. Yeah. It's been described, it's described as a propulsive political thriller featuring two outsiders caught up in a stunning conspiracy filled with details and twists that only a true political insider could write. And wow, it's like talk about edge your seat and gripping. uh, Sounds great. I just I was a little curious about your experience writing fiction versus nonfiction and using your savvy and insight into real politics and translating that into fictional plot and characters and in this novel. Yeah, no, it's been a lot of fun. So I, my first book was a novel. It was called oh. The People's House. And it was all about gerrymandering, which any novelist would tell you that's a terrible plot idea <laughs> so I, I, in terms of marketing a book. But my whole mission was maybe I can write a novel that educates people about politics through mm-hmm. a good story. Mm-hmm. And but but to spice up that story, I added a, I used to work in Russia years ago. So what? I added a Russian oligarch who rigged American elections. And I wrote the book. In oh, my God. 2012 and 15. Wow. Oh my God. And the book got a lot of attention because it came out before what happened in 16. And it turned out to have a lot of similarities. My my most recent book before Simple Choice is called The Voter File. And I don't want to get into the details of the plot too much, but it's all about this grand conspiracy to control state houses um, wow. in 20. And I wrote that before the results of 20 where Biden won, but we didn't win state houses. So my book's trying uh, to get yeah. people to think about mm-hmm. the real world of politics who otherwise may not think about it because they're, they're, they're just not insiders. So I've always tried to like layer in a real world view of politics through an interesting story. The next one gets out of sort of the uh, election game and is more into different types of, of, of corruption and kind of a, a culture clash of older and younger senators. And it gets into also this whole recent um, incredible phenomenon around CRISPR research. So someone the other day um, wrote a review that it reminded them of scandal with some kind of biological like theme to it. So I, I appreciate you bringing it up. Uh, but my books have always had this. I, I, I've said I wish my nonfiction were fiction mm. and I wish my fiction too often didn't sort of come true. Right. Um, That's my what second I was thinking. Book, the <laughs> Wingman. Like, I wrote a book next? called The Wingman. 
And the second book is all about a, an effort to put up fake candidates to take votes away from the person you don't want to win. Oh. And it's very similar to what happened in Florida a couple of years ago that people are now being indicted for. And mm. I wrote that before. So I think because I'm trying to be so realistic in my books about what could happen, it's always stumbling into what actually has been happening before I knew it. Wow. Uh, so it's been kind of an interesting mix of fiction and nonfiction. But uh, I'm excited about A Simple Choice. I appreciate the mention of it. Yeah, it comes out on August 2nd. All right. Well, we could talk about this forever. Um, really appreciate your making the time. It's quite fascinating. That if you get Charlene and I going about the writing, we're really going to be here for a long, long I, time. I, so. I, I feel, and but but Steve, don't you feel like quite, I'm like, okay, David is so productive. Like, wow, I don't know if he ever sleeps. It's very no, inspiring. Don't, don't get me started on that. It's like, <laughs> I'm like laying on the floor from having done a second book. And it was like, oh, here's another book. And then a fiction. And a fiction takes, and a novel. Right? Yeah. So it is like, maybe it was something about that law school. Because that's like Stacy in the middle of all of this, still putting out a children's book, a legal thriller. Uh, yeah. No, she's incredible. And by the way, I cite her a lot in, in my, in a laboratory's book. She's just so on it in terms of what's been happening and what needs to happen. Yeah, um, absolutely. One, you know, one of the moments I really credit her for is when she lost her governor's race in that very tainted race. Mm -hmm. She said to that crowd, we made progress. Mm -hmm. And I think most people just assumed, oh, that's just a throwaway line. Mm -hmm. No, she understands she's in a long game for democracy. And she knew more people voted for a black woman for governor than anyone ever had in Georgia. And she knew more people were registered. And so she meant it. And two years later, we all saw it. Oh, exactly. So yeah. she really understands mm -hmm. the long game for democracy in a way yeah. that others don't. So, yeah, we, I was... I was just sort of honored to be in a class with her when I was in mm -hmm. law school, and hopefully I learned something from her along the way. Yeah. But uh, yeah, she's incredible. All right. So I really just thank you, David, for making the time to be part of it. Thank you for your work, um, you know, toiling in the, the trenches, really, in Ohio, fighting that good fight. And really appreciate you making the time to be with us. Thanks. Thanks for having me on, and thanks for all the work you guys are doing. It's, it's incredibly important. Okay, so that's all the time we have for that conversation about my uh, home state of Ohio. It's, I was walking down memory lane and prepping for the podcast and looking at the Cleveland Plain Dealer columns from 1983, 1985. Some of the first things I got published writing when I worked at the editorial board there. And it's just really great to talk to Dave about what's going on and all the national implications for that. Um, you can follow David on Twitter. He's very active on Twitter. He's at David Pepper. And I also just wanted to flag for all of our listeners that we're talking about state races, these key battles, and he's 100% spot on, that there's far too little attention paid to what's happening at the states versus these federal fights. And so just to lift up uh, three quick things, people to focus. Well, we, we talked about Stacey Abrams. So Stacey is running for governor again in 2022. And that's one of the most important races within the whole country. Also, because Stacey's campaign is going to be the driving force and the engine for all of the work in Georgia, re-electing Raphael Warnock, electing B. Nguyen, uh, who was on the pod previously as the Secretary of State, so we can preserve democracy, have people vote, and also win Georgia in 2024. So that, that race is super important. Um, Arizona is another state that went for Biden and elected U.S. Senator uh, uh, from, from the Democratic Party in 2020, and that that's also going to be on the ballot this year, as well as Arizona state legislatures, the closest state legislature to flipping from Republican to Democrat, if any, within the whole country. And so that's going to be important. Uh, the coalition, Arizona Wins, which is working on trying to improve 
uh, voter turnout there. And don't sleep on Texas. It came out recently that Beto O'Rourke has just raised $28 million and is running a very smart campaign of trying to mobilize the new American majority. The majority of people in Texas are black and Latino. And so this notion that Texas is so conservative is not grounded in data. And if you can actually mobilize and turn out voters, we can actually win there. So in terms of the state houses and the state battles that we were talking about, those are some key places to focus on. All right. So thanks for joining us. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcast, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets, and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook, or subscribing to our newsletter at democracyincolor.com. Democracy in Color is also on Instagram, putting out great memes. You can follow us at Democracy in Color. If you listen to our podcast on iTunes, please leave us a rating and a comment. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker with support from Charlene Chang, Fola Onifade, and April Elkier. Recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio of San Francisco. Until next time, keep the faith.